0: You traveled to Africa in order to tell people's stories, both their successes and their struggles. But when you took it a step further, when you found a way to let them tell their own stories, to be both subjects and storytellers, you hit on something even more powerful. And the results? They speak for themselves. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories.
1: Just by chance, I was going to a place in northern Kenya where they were, it was in a kind of remote area of rural Kenya, northern Kenya, where there's been some conflict between cattle herders and farmers over land or different groups of cattle herders, different ethnic groups. They're experiencing drought up there. Sometimes they have conflict over natural resources, it can turn violent or deadly. And I was up. I was going up there to observe a meeting that was happening between leaders of different ethnic groups that were trying to work out a kind of peace building solution here. So anyway, I'm going up to this place. And in order to get there, I had to take a truck. And it just so happened that in order to reach this place, you had to pass through a wildlife reserve. So I basically had like an accidental free safari, which was amazing. There were giraffes, elephants, everything like, and I mean... This is sort of like a cliche of Kenya, but I mean, but I mean, it really is. It's amazing, the wildlife. So that was one where I was like, this is, this literally is my commute to work today that I am just going on this like open-sided truck through a nature reserve. There are elephants everywhere. And that's not even why I'm here. Like, that's just a byproduct of the work that I'm going to do.
0: This week, cameras for coffee farmers commuting with the elephants, and the precious resource of water. Join us on a journey from the United States to East Africa to learn, once again, that a picture is worth at least a thousand words. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all.
1: Exchanges shaped uh, who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yeah. So I'm Tim McDonnell. I'm a multimedia journalist. Um, I grew up in Arizona, but I live now here in Washington, D.C. In 2016 and 2017, I was a Fulbright National Geographic storytelling fellow in Kenya, Uganda, and Nigeria, working on a series of stories, a kind of uh, iterative project, different kinds of stories for National Geographic and other publications having to do with climate change impacts on food security. So talking a lot with farmers, a lot with agricultural entrepreneurs and scientists and looking at different parts of the food system in those three countries and how they were being affected in different ways by environmental change. And um, kind of doing stories along the way that, that looked at different parts of that. I think some of my best reporting that I did on the trip was in Uganda. That was the second country that I was in. So I was there for three months. And I knew going into Uganda that there were basically two stories that I was m- wanting to focus on that, that were really had nothing to do with each other. One was on coffee. Uganda has a huge coffee industry. Mm-hmm. Um, millions of people are employed directly or indirectly in that that industry in Uganda, growing coffee, pushing it through the, the production chain. Anyway, this is a big story for climate change because of course all of these are these are all smallholder farmers. They're very highly vulnerable to erratic rainfall, drought, um, and those are all things that they definitely are experiencing increasingly in East Africa and and definitely in Uganda. And I had the benefit of working with um, my host organization uh, that was kind of sponsoring my Fulbright was a research organization called the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture, which has offices all across Africa and does different types of research on commodity crops, including coffee in Uganda is one of their big ones. So they were kind of holding my hand through some of this. And I got to work closely with their scientists, was interviewing them about the work that they did and I knew that I was going to have a big feature story for National Geographic on coffee uh, in Uganda, which I did later on. But along the way, we came across something that I hadn't planned, a different story that actually was originally the idea of one of my colleagues at at the research institution, which was to take some disposable cameras and give them out to a cohort of coffee farmers in this one particular region of Eastern Uganda and let them photograph their own experience of climate change and see what they come back with. And maybe that would kind of produce some interesting insights or just be a way of kind of looking at this story through a different lens and letting people tell their own side of the story. So we took a dozen cameras, 12 cameras. We gave them out to the... Uh, male head of household and female head of house um, in six different households uh, on this mountain called Mount Elgon in Uganda, which is a big coffee growing place. So we wanted to get a kind of gender distribution. We wanted to get a kind of elevation distribution and just let people keep these cameras for, I think we gave them to them for three, four weeks or something uh, and see what they came back with. And and I think you find a lot of the times with smallholder farmers, they are very, very sensitive to environmental change. They, you know, there's no question that something is happening, whether or not they understand it in the terms of man-made climate change, the way that, you know, scientists might describe it. A lot of them are not really familiar with that technical side of it, but they experience it in a very visceral way. So you can get a very interesting side of the story for what, you know, their understanding of that issue is. We left the instructions very vague on purpose. It was not like, you know, we weren't asking people to take pictures of anything in particular, just what are the changes that you're seeing? What's your kind of experience of climate change? Whatever that means to you. So we gave them the cameras. They took a lot of pictures. We went back a few weeks later and collected all of the cameras and i i honestly my expectation was very low i thought that maybe if between the 12 cameras that we gave out i thought if we got like two or three photos that were decent looking that that would be a success and i mean between the 12 cam each camera has like 30 photos there's 12 cameras so there's like hundreds of pictures that i was looking at and i was totally amazed by the quality of images that came back i mean some of them are sort of low quality because they're they're you know they're not very good cameras they're like cheap plastic disposable cameras, but the artistry and the the lens that people were using and the types of things that they chose to focus on I found very interesting. And the photos actually just aesthetically as pieces of art were very beautiful. You know, and as an outsider, I felt like a window into a side of everyday life on this coffee-growing mountain that there's no way that I would have been able to photograph myself. You know, people were taking pictures of... Of course, their farms was a big thing, so farm labor, but also people were taking a lot of photos of a kind of road network I know was a big thing and and rural infrastructure because coffee, it's a cash crop. So getting it to market is a huge part of the challenge and dealing with really bad roads and the kind of lack of a a good market infrastructure is one of the things that people really think about a lot. So that was part of the, that came out in the photos. We were also very interested to see whether there were differences between men and women in the types of photos that they took. I know that. So one case, um, at least, we discovered later that the husband in the household had actually just taken both cameras and done all the photos on all of them. So I don't know, that was like a learning experience (laughs) in and of itself. One thing I noticed was that between the men and the women was actually that there was a lot of commonality between them and that it was not at all the sort of stereotype of gender roles where maybe men are taking pictures of the farm field and women are taking pictures of the children at home or something like that. It was everyone is kind of doing all jobs. So we had a lot of photos that were coming from men which as I said were about, you know, sending children to school. We had photos of women working in their own coffee fields. So there were there actually was a lot of crossover between them which I think speaks to like the extent to which this Coffee industry, small-scale coffee industry in Uganda is really a family affair. Everyone is doing all jobs, and each household has its own set of coffee trees. And so it's you know it's really a family business. Everyone is involved with every aspect of it, and as a community, they're all working together to pool resources to get the coffee from this remote village into, I mean, eventually to Kampala, where it gets put on a ship and sent to here um, or Europe or wherever. <music> Another thing I found so interesting in a lot of the photos was a theme of education that came out a lot. A lot of pictures of school, of kids going to school, getting dressed for school. And when we went back later and talked to people about, you know, what's the story behind this photo? Again, coffee being a cash crop. Well, then you ask people, what are you spending the money on that you get from coffee? Education. That's the thing that comes up time and again. They're using the money from coffee to send their kids to school. So when you talk about what's the impact of a drought on your coffee farm, the thing that a lot of people are thinking of is it means that one or more of my kids is not going to go to school this year. And that was what we found in a lot of different families was that kids, after a bad coffee year, which they had the year that I was there, a lot of kids are not going to school that year. So anyway, you know, that's, I never would have thought to ask that question. So you you get these very interesting connections. I was so impressed by the kind of visual quality of these photos that I thought it would be really cool to try to display them publicly somewhere. I selected, I think, three pictures, three or four pictures from each farmer's um, camera. And then we reached out to, um, well, first I reached out to the U.S. Embassy because I knew that they had an interest in possibly helping Fulbrighters uh, do kind of local public engagement with the work that they were doing. And so the cultural affairs officer who I was in touch with there was super helpful. And they had this great idea of um, getting in touch with one of their contacts at Makerere University, which is a big university in Uganda. And they have a very beautiful um, art museum on the campus. So they reached out to their contact there and managed to uh, negotiate something where I could set up all these pictures as a display in the art gallery for several weeks. And so I got all these pictures printed up and hung them all in the gallery. And that was really cool. And we had some little note cards that were on the wall explaining what the project was about. And then as a kind of capstone to this, which actually just by sheer coincidence happened to be on my very last day in Uganda, we just managed to fit it in right at the end. We had a little seminar and brought in the scientists from the research organization. I was there and we even managed to bring Sam, who was one of the coffee farmers from the very top of the mountain, uh, who was just a really amazing character, very insightful guy, talked a lot about this education issue, a kind of local community leader who had a lot of thoughts about climate change as well brought him down to Kampala and we had a little panel discussion, a little cocktail party. Um, I don't think there were cocktails actually, but a little party uh, anyway with people, you know, like a gallery opening. And it was so cool. So Sam, the one farmer that we managed to bring down to see the gallery showing. He was very interested in the way that you could use these photos to do kind of community level education on farming techniques, because he was looking at some of the pictures from other farmers. And he knows all these people because it's a pretty small community. And I remember him looking at some of the pictures and saying, ah, why does he have his trees, like, this way? Or you can see, like, this tree is clearly dying, but I can see it's because he hasn't, like, done this certain thing properly. And, you know, I think he was looking at it as a way of, you know, we could maybe use this visual media to spread the word about climate-adapted agriculture practices. Because Sam, you know, he's he's a big reader. He tries to stay up on all the latest agricultural science and, you know, trying to innovate different ways of withstanding drought and dealing with their environmental conditions. And I think that he saw these photos as a way of kind of spreading the gospel of better uh, agricultural practices, which I thought was cool. Not something that I would have ever thought of, that they could actually be a tool for local education purposes um, for other farmers. And I I think that was something that was really uh, interesting to him about, about that. Yeah. For me, this project was a really cool opportunity to experiment with different ways of doing multimedia and doing a kind of collaborative multimedia process that involves journalists and scientists and the characters that both of those groups are working on trying to research in different ways. You know, it's not I, I probably not would not have pursued this project without the support of Fulbright and without the support of my host organization, which brought this idea to fruition and gave the resources to allow it to happen, um, so I think it expanded my my mind in terms of what's possible when you are able to like work with a, a more diverse group of participants and also ha- ways in which you can bring the people who are in your stories more into the process of helping to tell their own narratives so that it's not so much of this sort of outside looking in thing, which you have so much in foreign correspondence, but a way to actually bring people in and, and using their own voices to tell the story. So I would love to be able to do something like that again in the future. It was, it was really, really exciting thing to work on. As a journalist, you interview people, you photograph them, you form relationships with people. They are talking to you about intimate details of their life. You go and write a story about those things. It goes out into the world. Sometimes you stay in touch with those people and you get some kind of feedback on the thing that you have written about them. But, you know, a lot of the times you don't, especially when you're dealing with issues that are affecting very rural populations, like climate and agriculture tends to be something that's happening, you know, in rural areas. People don't have very good network connectivity, so it's not always very easy to stay in touch with people after you leave the area. And that means that you don't really have a good way of sharing the story with the people that it's about, You don't have a good way of getting feedback from them. But what was cool about this coffee thing, this cameras project, was that we were working with them, you know, several times over the course of a few months. We brought them in for this exhibition. So there was a lot of feedback that got to happen, which was so interesting for me to get to share the story with the people that it was about. They think it's cool because it's their photos that are hanging in a gallery. They never thought that that was going to happen, you know, totally minds blown on all sides. And so, yeah, just a really awesome kind of experience that that never would have happened in another way. Yeah. Well, the coffee farms of Uganda are incredibly beautiful. I mean, this mountain, Mount Elgon, where we were working, is sort of this like misty, magical place. I mean, I really just wanted to like drop everything and just move there and give it all up and just work on the farm for the rest of my life. I could easily see that happening. Yeah, it was it was such a it was a really incredible experience. Um, And then it was had a very interesting pivot because. In between, in the midst of working on all this coffee stuff, which was sort of—I mean, okay—they're dealing with drought, they're dealing with a lot of uh, environmental problems, but in a way, it's also sort of very bucolic, this sort of idyllic lifestyle. And I mean, despite the challenges that people have, they love doing this work. I mean, I—I I didn't meet anyone. I met people who had issues that they were dealing with, but overall. People love the places that they're from. They love doing this kind of coffee work. It's very personal. They are often working on trees, the same coffee trees that their great-grandfathers planted generations ago. So there's a deep love for that. And so in, in that sense, it's it's a kind of happy story. Uh, but in the midst of working on all this coffee stuff, I also took some time to work on the second story that I was interested in Uganda which was the South Sudanese refugee crisis that's happening in the northern part of the country, which at the time that I was there, it was the world's fastest growing refugee population. South Sudanese people fleeing truly horrible conflict in their country, which is just across the northern border of Uganda. (laughs) And they had, at the time that I was there, uh, up to 5,000 people per day, refugees coming across the border into Uganda, a couple million people that are there living in settlements now. That was a very different type of experience for me to see from, from all the coffee farms, obviously. Not as happy of a story, although one that similarly you find a lot of threads of incredible resilience and fortitude perseverance, creativity, really incredible stories that were there. And I had one of the more like profound cultural realizations or a kind of reckoning of my own privilege as a Westerner in that experience, because I was working on specifically the issue of water access, which was a big problem. All these refugees are coming into a part of Uganda, which, unlike the coffee growing regions is very dry, very arid. It had a very low population density prior to this refugee crisis. Very few people, I mean, people were living there, but it's really where you're starting to move more from this kind of like tropical savanna type um, African landscape into a desert. So water access was a big issue. You can just imagine you have 5,000 people per day coming into a place. There's no like water pipes. They don't have wells. There's no way to like get water for anyone. So the, the humanitarian agencies that were working there, water access was really the number one thing that they are working on. And it was very obvious that that was the case when you got to the settlement because you could see lines of people with 100, you know, 100 people in line for one water pump. Um, people would be waiting all day with a single can of water that they're supposed to supply their whole family's needs for washing, drinking, cooking, and everything with this one can. They have to wait all day in the line for that. Most of the water actually was coming directly out of the Nile River, which was not far from there. They have pumps that pull it out. They treat it so that it's drinkable, and then they put it in big tanks, And people, but they're moving it in trucks. It's really slow. There's no way they can supply all the people. So to me, that was that story really stood out. <music> I was following one woman, Leia Jogo, who was a, a widowed grade school teacher who uh, a refugee who had come from South Sudan, who I met in one of these lines for water, and followed her on camera for a few days as she was, you know, dealing with this water problem. And I ended up making a short film that kind of follow you know, kind of follows one day of her waiting in line for water. We did that story for NPR. I just remember this one day after spending the whole day with her. She has this five-gallon or so water can that she is. She has several children, um, some of whom are hers, some of whom are you know, orphan children that she's picked up along the way, caring for all of them. They're all trying to supply themselves out of this one water can. Well, later that day, I went back to the hotel where I was staying, which was a run-down, rural, terrible hotel that also lacked uh, running water, but they brought in a can of water for me to use to shower and and everything. It was the very same yellow jerry can that everyone in the refugee settlement had been using that day, the exact same one. It was just so shocking to me. I mean, I I felt, uh, I was feeling very dusty, dirty, gross after having been sweating and running around all day. And I took a shower and I had used like more than half of the can by the end. (laughs) That to me was like, it really put into perspective what people are dealing with there. And I I don't know, you know, it sounds maybe... uh, Trite or something. I mean that I that it it took that for me to have that realization. But you can see the, what people are going through. But um, you know until you experience it yourself, not that I'm not comparing my own experience to theirs. But you know that was just a very interesting uh, intersection for me and very a very profound moment that I think really put this issue into perspective. that reporting and the coffee work that i was doing i was very proud of the work that i did there actually and i think those stories came out really well and in both cases i had the opportunity to share the stories back with the people that they were about which i was really happy about and so yeah so that that work that i did in uganda i think was some of the best that i did as a Fulbrighter. <laughs> I had done reporting trips abroad before, but only in a kind of one-off way, where you do all the planning from your desk in D.C. or New York, and then you go abroad for like two or three weeks, you do a story, and then you come back. This was a case where, you know, I was doing all of the logistical planning myself. You know, everything from just finding drivers, finding translators, you know, figuring out what you can eat, how you're going to get your own drinking water when you're up there, and what to wear and how to deal with like the camera equipment that I had and dealing with security issues, making sure that I wasn't going to go someplace that was dangerous or, you know, how to kind of manage risk in that way. That That was all very much learning experience for me in this. And so all of these stories, whether it was going to like the world's most beautiful small coffee farm and having a great day, like hanging out with farmers or Um, a more challenging reporting experience in northern Uganda, or when I went to Nigeria next, you know, in the northeast of Nigeria where Boko Haram has been active, which was also a very challenging reporting environment to work in. um, And I was there for about 10 days. The training that we kind of gave ourselves um, through Fulbright was uh, incredibly useful. There's no way that I would have felt comfortable um, dealing with all the, the logistics of everything. So I think in terms of, like, how to go about the actual business of doing foreign correspondence as a freelancer was very much aided by all the experiences that I had on Fulbright. As a person, I think I also grew a lot from the experience. You know, I mean, I I got to form a lot of close relationships with people that was over there and uh, just spending so much time. You know, it's a different, you get a different view of a country, I think, when you spend enough time over there that you have the opportunity to kind of become bored. And what I mean by that is like sometime if you're traveling someplace for a very short amount of time you can spend the whole time that you're over there dealing with jet lag you like everything is completely overwhelming and your mind is blown and everything is new and fresh and you stay there for 2 weeks and then you leave and then so you have this kind of rose-colored vision of everything but when i was in you know countries and staying for several months at a time you kind of you get past that point then you're at you kind of reach another hump where you you have a more low key like version of what's happening. You kind of have a chance to step back, and I think you see things in a different way when when your mind slows down a little bit. Uh, and you you have days when you're there where you have nothing to do, and you know maybe the power goes out, and you just walk around your neighborhood, and you know that's it. And so you know all of those things. I I think I got a chance to to just really experience these these places in a in a deep way that was really fascinating and, and had a lot of effect on me and that, I mean definitely did not at all quench my desire to work abroad particularly in Africa you know always looking for you know excuses to go back and you know I'm sure that I'll just be spending more time there in the, in the future as well. This Fulbright was very special because of the collaboration that happened with National Geographic. We did amazing, um, you know, working seminars with some of their photographers and um, staff writers and other people and got to make, you know, I have contacts, um, good friends who are still there working for the magazine, working for other parts of the media organization, working for the National Geographic Society, which is the nonprofit arm that the Fulbright um, team works under there. And uh, so, you know, that was just a really incredible experience. And I'm so glad that these two organizations were able to get together and and pool resources because it's it's really cool and it's a very unique opportunity for for young, um, you know, storytellers of different stripes.
0: This week, Tim McDonald shared stories from his time as a Fulbright National Geographic Fellow. For more about the Fulbright National Geographic Fellowship and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating while you're at it. We'd also love to hear from you. You can write to us at, at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Or you can check us out at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Tim for sharing stories from his time in Africa. Ana Maria Sanitin and I did the interview and I edited this episode. Featured music was Grand Caravan, Mercurial Vision, Thirteens, and Surly Bonds, all by the Blue Dot Sessions, and From Truth by Dexter Britton. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time.